Thank you for joining us. Remember, you can watch our services live and view our archive at StevensCreekChurch.com, the Stevens Creek app, or on our Roku channel. And if our ministries have touched your life, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email to mystory@stevenscreekchurch.com. We hope today's message encourages and inspires you. Enjoy the message. Well, hey, hey, everybody. You guys doing good this early afternoon? Good to be here. Hey, I don't, well, I want to welcome those online too. Some of you are online, I welcome you too. Um, but hey, I, I don't know who is willing to admit any occasional bin watching. Anybody want to confess? We're in church, you can confess. I'm a pastor, I'll hear you out. Okay, so I binge watch too sometimes, right? I might or may not in the early COVID days binge watch in less than three days Tiger King. Anybody seen that? Saw that? Don't want to admit it? Okay, good. Um, we're all on the same page, I think. My first binge watching experience goes a little bit back far to the DVD days. Some high schoolers, you're like, DVDs, what? But, uh, but anyway, well, it goes back to the DVD days, and, and there was a show that my wife and I could not stop watching. You guys might remember it, the show 24. Anybody a fan of 24? Remember the tick? Oh, man. Cliffhanger every episode. I mean, my wife and I were obsessed so much that my wife's friend bought her a T-shirt with the main character's name is Jack Bauer. His face was on the T-shirt, okay? And then it said, I love Jack Bauer. Now, you tell me if I wore a shirt that said I love fill in the actress, right, with her face on it, wouldn't go so good. I don't know. Uh, but, but, but nonetheless, I actually pretty much, I'm sure I, I mean, I think I pretty much wanted a T-shirt, <laughs> right, with the same one. Uh, but we loved it because we would watch the episode and we'd be 1030 and we'd look at each other we're like one more and then be like 1115 and be like one more and then be like midnight. We're like, we just got to get up at seven. I think we can pull it off, right, because it was just like, oh, man, so intense. But basically, everybody... Love 24 because everybody loved Jack Bauer. Why? Because he was full of courage. He was, he was courageous and, um, and he also was always 10 steps ahead of his enemy, which everybody loved, right? And the thing about Jack Bauer, if you know the show, you know this, right? He appeared to be unstoppable. I mean, there was no torture too painful. There was no sacrifice too great. I mean, he was, he was loyal to the core. He wanted to save America from any terrorist attack. And he was driven toward this. But of course he had enemies. And a truly formidable enemy understands one thing. If he can't break the strongest of men, Jack Bauer, right, he may stop going after him, but he won't stop going after the ones he loves. So in the first episode, or the first season, I should say, of 24, what happens? They capture Jack Bauer's daughter. They capture his daughter. And this... This show has this theme, but it's not the only place that has this theme. In fact, the theme represents this greater, let's call it a metaphysical narrative. It reflects, in fact, our relationship with our Heavenly Father and our relationship with His enemy, who we know as Satan. And Satan knows this. He knows he can't break God. So what does he do? He goes after the ones God loves, His children. That's you. That's me. That's His family. He can't break the ultimate warrior who's for justice and truth and goodness and unity and love. So he tries to break the warrior's followers. And when we open up the scriptures, there's, there's a couple things we learn about the enemy, about Satan or the devil or the adversary. Use, use different names in the scripture that we find. But scripture tells us, one, that Satan is real. Good and evil are real. God and Satan are real. And that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
Scripture tells us he comes to steal, kill, and destroy the life that God dreams and designed for us to live. He says he's the father of lies, that there's no truth in him. Satan twists and distorts the truth. He, he tries to deceive us. His goal is to derail our lives any way he can. But here's the good news. We don't have to fear our enemy. Because God equips us, or at least wants to equip us, to be overcomers. To defeat him and his tactics. And the only power ultimately Satan has over us is the power that we give him. Truth is this. Every one of us in this room... Every one of us listening has battles that we must face. You know your battle. I know my battle. And the battles that we face usually begin in the mind. And they encompass the heart. And today I want to look at a text in Ephesians chapter 6 where we can discover how our minds and our hearts and our very lives can be transformed if we would learn how to engage the battles, the battles with the opposing forces that are coming at us. So we pick up in Ephesians chapter 6 and what happens is, is Paul essentially welcomes us to fight club. He offers us a battle plan. He, he says in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Then he says, put on the full armor of God. It's not our armor, it's God's armor, which means there's this supernatural enablement that comes with it, that we would be overcomers. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Right? Paul's saying this stuff's real. It's not just what we see, but there's other stuff going on. Then he says in verse 13, Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. There's an emphasis on this word stand. Standing firm, he's talking about standing firm in the truth. So here's the thing what the scriptures inform us on. Our energy and focus ought not to be all zeroed in on Satan, on our enemy, on the adversary. Instead, our efforts should be directed at recognizing and choosing to stand. To stand in what God already said is true regarding him and regarding our identity in him. There's this idea of, of spiritual warfare. And what spiritual warfare is not is it's not a power encounter, as if we're supposed to conquer Satan. What it is is a truth encounter. When we engage in truth, when we recognize truth, when we live in truth, what happens is the Scripture says Satan flees from us. Truth about God, truth about us. So our battle plan begins with standing. Standing on the truth of who God is and who we are in him. The question then becomes, how? How do we do that? And what Paul gives us here in this text is six pieces of armor that we can use in the battle that begins in our minds. And the first armor or piece of armor is called the belt of truth. Paul says, stand firm. He says, stand again. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. So, in the first century, it was customary, you may not know this, maybe you do, but it was customary for, for men to wear long, loose-fitting robes or, or tunics. So, basically, it's a large piece of material that's got holes for the head and holes for the arms. And the belt was this cloth, sometimes leather, girdle that cinched up the tunic. 
Its purpose, of course, was to hold up the loose garment, prevent a person from, you know, tripping or falling or, 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 or whatever, right, stumbling. So, so the, the belt stabilized whatever the soldier was wearing, and he allowed that soldier to function essentially unencumbered so he would have freedom to respond how he might need to. Um, so the belt... What, what was his purpose? It was to, to, to secure other things. It was a foundation. Without it, nothing else works, right? So the belt stabilizes our lives. This is the metaphor that Paul's giving. It keeps things in proper order. It frees us to respond. And here's what the enemy knows. The enemy knows that if we don't know the truth and see the truth clearly, that everything else will unravel. And the whole book of Ephesians is wrapped around two central truths. It, it's woven through the letter. The, the truths about God, about who he is, and the truths about us, who we are. So what does that mean for us? Well, we must seek God. We must seek him and, and build intimacy, cultivate, cultivate intimacy and connection with God through prayer. We must invite God's spirit to speak to us and remind us that we are God's beloved. The enemy wants to, to, to tell us, you know, we are not loved, we are not worthy. We declare that God's word is the authority and the foundation of our life. That's putting on the belt of truth. And what we discover and experience along the way about the truth of God is we actually get to know truth himself. Remember when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth embodied in a person. And knowing truth, knowing Jesus, equips us to better counteract the distorted perceptions, the lies, the false beliefs that infect and pollute our thinking and our living. The enemy tells us we're not good enough. Says we're not worthy of God's love. He, he twists and distorts things. He, he tries to get us off track any way he can. And if our lives are shaped by these distorted ideas about God or about ourselves, we will inevitably feel defeated, at least sometimes, and we'll live compromised lives. When we allow these lies to dominate our thinking, it impacts, impacts every aspect of our life. So when we put on the belt of truth, what we're doing is we're acknowledging and embracing that Jesus Christ is the truth. It also means, it also means that we're allowing God's truth to work in our lives, to manifest in all the areas of our inward and outer lives. And that's what holds up our lives. It's what prevents us from stumbling or tripping or falling. And what does Jesus say? When we put on the belt of truth, living in truth, acknowledging truth, embracing truth, building our life on truth leads us to freedom. It says the truth will set you free. We come to the second piece of armor and it's called the belt, or sorry, the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate was a bronze or leather chest protector that slipped over the head and cinched in the back. And its primary purpose was to protect the heart. Now in Hebrew and Greek thought, the, the, the heart was, was more inclusive than maybe we tend to think. They had this idea that encompassed our thinking, our emotions, our conscience, our will, our affections, right? That's the heart. And just as the heart in our physical life is the physical pump that controls the flow of blood through our body, right? In the same way, in spiritual terms, it's the spiritual pump that God uses to infuse life into our body. The rest of our body works through the heart, and if the heart stops, everything else stops. We know this. The same is true spiritually. It's why Proverbs says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. The breastplate of righteousness protects the heart. Now, with righteousness, there's really two sides of righteousness 
There's the being side and the doing side. The being side is the idea of our, our position of righteousness. In other words, we're, we're credited righteousness by God through Christ. So a right standing with God, it's made possible solely through the sacrifice, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So when we trust Jesus as our Savior, when we begin to follow him, he not only forgives our sins, he also imputes to us righteousness. We're credited as his righteousness. It's given to us. 2 Corinthians, Paul says this in five, uh, chapter 5, verse 21. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our adversary can't ultimately take that away once we become followers of Christ. But he does try to wreak havoc on our personal practice of righteousness. That's the doing side. Why? Because he knows it will dislodge intimacy that we can have with God. In other words, he wants to cause a breach between our position of righteousness, the being side, and our practice of righteousness, the doing side. If we allow unrighteous practices to exist in our lives, sin, and we don't confess them and repent and receive forgiveness and healing, if we, if we don't do that, we leave the door wide open for Satan's influence. In other words, if we don't deal with our unrighteousness, we're more susceptible to the schemes and strategies of the enemy. So to put on the breastplate of righteousness, it reminds us of our right standing with God that is based off Christ's death and resurrection. And then we, we pursue righteous living, not as a way of earning anything from God, but as a grateful response to the freedom, the love, the acceptance that God offers to every single one of us. That's the gospel. The enemy wants to tell us we have to earn God's love. That's religion. He wants to tell us we don't deserve it. We're unworthy. We're not good enough. Our past is too shameful. But he's a liar. He's the father of lies. And he wants to drive your heart away from God any way he can. It's why we must bring our hearts into alignment with the truth of what it means to be made righteous in Christ. Not on our own means, but because of him and through him. And in our hearts, when we know our standing before God as righteous, the outflow of our lives will be righteous living. Now we move to the third piece of armor, what Paul calls the feet fitted for readiness of the gospel of peace, right? The feet fitted with readiness of the gospel of peace. So, a Roman soldier, this is kind of cool, a Roman soldier, they, they had these shoes that were called caliga or caliga. And they were essentially sandals that were studded with nails. They were called hobnails. They were used for traction. They were used for durability and stability, right? You can imagine like a baseball cleat or a football cleat. And it gave the soldiers footing, made them more mobile in battle, made them more difficult to knock down. So the spiritual parallel here and what Paul is getting at is the idea of readiness or preparedness, which entails the feet that are equipped with what? With the gospel of peace. Romans 5.1 says, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's that peace? That peace is the, is the thing that offers us inner stability and mobility. It's based on the good news. It's based on the gospel of peace with God, which is liberating and empowering to us. We put on peace and we create traction where the enemy can't knock us off our feet. So one common tactic, if you go back to the first century that they used, it was sort of like the ancient version of a, line, uh, sorry, a landmine. 
And there were these razor-sharp sticks that would stick in the ground that faced the oncoming soldiers. They're trying to what? They're trying to hurt the feet of, of the oncoming soldiers. So if a soldier's feet were compromised, they knew, they would become immobilized. There could be an elite soldier with years of experience and training. They're fully equipped. They're, they're fiercely determined. And yet they would be rendered virtually useless if their feet were injured. So the enemy, in essence, wants to make you feel useless. For that matter, helpless and hopeless. He, take, he wants to take you down. He wants to keep you defeated. He wants to destabilize you. And that's why God wants to prepare you, wants to make you ready so that when the hard things of life come, when the, 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 the doubting thoughts, when the fears, when the anxieties, when the despair, or when, those bad, when, when rough things happen, what does he want? He wants you to remember the gospel of peace, the, the centeredness that you can experience in him, that you can trust his greater purposes and provision. The idea of peace in the scriptures encompasses this idea of shalom. It's the idea of wholeness, completeness, or an inner rest of the soul, no matter what circumstances are happening around you. So a person of peace, where they're experiencing the peace that Paul is talking about, is grounded, is stable, is at rest in their soul. And because the gospel has permeated their life, they experience this. They've learned to trust God deeply no matter what circumstances come their way. Isaiah 26 says, you, God, will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. The more we learn to trust in God, the greater our peace will be. Philippians 4, 7, again, it's Paul, and he says, peace that surpasses all of human understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus from the lies, the accusations, from all the, the negative thinking that might come your way. It's the peace that grounds you. It's the peace that gives you traction and stability. So if we look at the six you know, pieces of the armor of God, it's interesting because if you, if you read the Greek language, there's two different verbs going on. In the first three pieces, Paul uses uh, the verb, verb having, and it indicates at all times. So you have these three pieces of armor at all times. You have the belt of truth, you have the breastplate of righteousness, you have the ready shoes of the gospel of peace. And then the next three pieces of armor, Paul changes verb tenses and he, and he uses the term take or take on. Right? What you are to have at hand, ready to access, is the idea, and to use whenever you need them. Right? That's where Paul switches. And he says, he says, you should take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. You should take up the sword of the spirit. So it's something like if a police officer went to breakfast they wouldn't typically remove their utility belt or their bulletproof vest or their boots. Those are all buckled up and they're on. They'd leave those on. But they might have other things at their disposal, like a riot shield, a knife, perhaps a helmet. And that's for their personal defense if needed. So Paul shifts gears. Verse 16, he says this. In addition to all this, taking up the shield of faith, he says, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So he's saying when all the flaming arrows come at you, this is the time to take up the shield of faith. Time to access that. And the word for shield, it's really cool. It's this thick plank of wood that measures about four and a half feet tall, two and a half feet wide. And in battle, a soldier could actually crouch down and get behind the shield when he was being targeted. So the shield was covered then with metal or with leather and it was treated with oil. 
The reason it was treated with oil was so it would extinguish the fiery tar tips of the incoming arrows. So Roman archers would wrap the tips of their arrows in this cotton material. They would put tar on it, and just before they shot the arrow, they'd light it. So imagine the arrows going through the air lit on fire with tar. And when the arrow hit its target, the idea was the tar would splatter. It would cause several little fires, maybe on the clothing of the soldier or anything else that was combustible. And these are the fiery darts or fiery arrows that represent what the enemy wants to do in your life. He wants to shoot fiery darts and arrows into your life. He wants to dismantle things in your life. He wants to whisper lies and accusations. He, he wants to tempt you and try to twist the truth and get you to live unrighteously. However, when you take up the shield of faith, it protects you from attack. It puts out the fires. When you walk by faith, the enemy flees. What is faith? Faith, in essence, is taking God at his word. It involves choosing to believe and respond to what truth God has already spoken. So we put our faith in a worthy object, God. I mean, you can't, faith really isn't faith at all if it's, if it's in something that's not true. It's not faith if you're putting faith in something that's true. I mean, it's like, it's like holding up a paper plate, right, as your shield. It's not going to do too much. And so when the enemy fires these, these lies at us, these accusations, these false things that, that, that he tries to influence on, us on, they might strike home. They, they might focus on our thinking or our emotions. They have the capacity to start multiple fires in our lives and create all kinds of consequences if we give in to them. But Ephesians 6 tells us by faith we have the power to extinguish these flaming arrows. That is, we have the power to ward off the lies. God gives it to us by his spirit, by building our life on truth. These distortions, these accusations, we can snuff out their impact. And instead of allowing our circumstances, our thoughts, our emotions to dictate reality, faith played out is about our choices. We put on the shield of faith, and by that, we are choosing to align our lives with what God has already said is true. It helps us live for him, live to honor him. There's this movie, perhaps you saw it years ago or maybe more recently, but a movie called 300. And there's this powerful scene of these 300 brave Spartan warriors. They're in battle against one million soldiers from the Persian Empire. And in one scene, these enemy soldiers, it's a powerful scene, they send thousands of fiery arrows through the air. The command is given to these Spartan warriors to put up their shields and link them together. And you see all these fire arrows going through the air, coming at these shields, these soldiers. And at one point, there's even a part of the scene where the soldier is laughing behind one of the, one of the shields because they're, they're so completely protected. And I love that scene because it's a metaphor of sometimes how our faith goes. Because I don't know about you, but, but sometimes your faith gets a little weak, maybe a lot weak. Maybe your health takes a bad turn or someone betrays you. Maybe a relationship ends that you didn't expect. It, it's unexpected, comes out of nowhere. Maybe you lose your job or you sink into depression or you start doubting God. And your faith starts to wobble a little bit. That scene with those shields reminds me of this idea of, of having one another to link arms with. right? Where our faith is strengthened by someone else's faith. Because our shield of faith is linked together. And I know I've been there in my own life. I mean, I remember specifically one case 
We have our youngest son, Holden, who's, who was diagnosed with autism. And between three and seven were some of the hardest years of our life in navigating the challenges that, that, that he brought into our lives. And I remember the people in the church community that we were part of at the time just wrapping their arms around us, serving us, caring for us, praying for us, and just lifting us, strengthening our faith, encouraging us. And it was a powerful time where the church became the church to us and our family. And that's real. And, and the truth is the enemy attacks individuals and, and we need the shield of faith for that. But, but he also attacks the body of Christ, God's beloved community. And sometimes we need each other. We need to link arms together. We need to have each other's back. Truth of the matter is the church in our day is under attack. And the church, us, the body of Christ, the army of God, we need to rise up. We need to live in truth. We need to proclaim truth. We need to wrap our lives around the truth of God, walk in faith. And help strengthen one another along the way. We are on the same team. We're in the same army. We're in battles together. And we look to God, but we also look to each other to help, to strengthen, to encourage. Well, now we move from the shield of faith to the fifth piece of armor, the helmet of salvation. The helmet in the first century was either metal or sometimes leather. I would have chose metal. How about you? But it covered the head, of course. The helmet... It is the idea, what Paul's talking about here, is the hope that comes from knowing Jesus, who is working out his plan in human history. To put on the helmet means that we remember that this, would not, that this world is not our ultimate reality, but there, there's an eternal perspective. This world, this life is like a fleeting vapor. And First Peter says it like this, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. And sometimes, you know, it sort of feels like the principalities and powers of darkness are winning. They're reigning. But the truth of the matter is, the end is absolutely certain. You see, God is the ultimate warrior. God has already won the war. We still have to fight the battles, but God has won the war. And he wants us to take on the eternal perspective. He wants our minds to be actively engaged in this perspective so that it can help us maintain hope along the way, especially when things aren't going our way. When we put on the helmet of salvation, we bring our thinking into alignment with God's eternal perspective. We remember what he's done, what he's doing, and what he's committed one day to do in the future. That's the helmet of salvation. And now, finally, we turn to the sixth piece of armor, which is called the sword of the spirit, or the word of God. So, a number of years ago, I was dating my now wife, Sherry. So she's my girlfriend at the time. We're at a birthday party that, that was put on. She put on for me. We're at Dave and Buster's, and I have a bunch of friends around, and she has a few gifts for me, all right? And, and, and one of the gifts that she gave me, now, mind you, it's a few years ago, and it was in the days where Braveheart and Gladiator were epic films. So just give you some context. So what do I do? I open up the box, and you can guess what this is going to be. She gives me the best gift she's ever given me. Wham, ram. Right? A sword. Like, I'm, I'm swinging this thing around like this, you know. The, the, the cooks and the, and the servers, they're, like, coming back. They want to hold this thing, right? They're like, whoa, yeah, it's pretty heavy, you know. And, and, then, and then she points my eyes to a little verse she puts on there, Ephesians 6, 17. All right, the sword of the spirit. She says some kind words to me about it. 
And uh, I was like, girls like flowers and men like swords. Yeah. Right? Now, this, this sword is not really the sword that Paul's talking about, but it was really fun to bring up here. So I'll put that down. <laughs> uh, there was different kinds of Roman swords. And the sword that actually Paul is talking about is a little different. The Greek word for sword is machera. And what he's talking about here is actually more like a dagger. Okay, it's the smaller of the two different Roman swords, and it ranges between, ranges between 6 and 18 inches. So it functioned like a dagger so that you could use it in close encounters. It was this precise weapon. It was, it was carried by the soldier, and the idea here is when, when the enemy broke through the ranks and threatened the Roman soldier, right, it was immediate, personal, close danger. It was a close encounter. It was his line of defense, right? He had the dagger. He had the sword. And it makes us think, and what Paul is doing here is making us think that we sometimes are in these clothes. Sometimes it feels like a personal attack. Ever feel that way? Ever been in that place? But Paul is reminding us we're not defenseless. That this is a weapon. A weapon, quite frankly, that we don't use nearly enough. And Paul is saying, no, this is the sword of the spirit. This is the word of God. If you want to put your faith into action, right, you verbally renounce the lies. You affirm the truth that's grounded in the scriptures. And it's interesting to me because if you look at Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, we find Jesus modeling this whole idea for us. He's using the spiritual weapon of the sword of the spirit. Remember that text where he faces three temptations? He's he's been fasting and praying for 40 days. Satan comes on the scene and Satan's trying to twist the truth. In each case, a specific appeal is made. And it's the same kind of appeals that are made to us. Basically, to be relevant, to be spectacular, to be powerful. And what does Jesus do? How does he respond? He responds to Satan's attempts to deceive with this little phrase. He says, it is written. And he goes on to quote an Old Testament verse. He's using the sword of the spirit. He's using a weapon against the enemy. And I wonder in your life, part of what we have to do is declare verbally and out loud God's word, specific to what temptations we're facing. This is important. Take some work to identify what are the specific areas that Satan kind of goes at you for or after. And what's the word of God? What's the truth of God that, that you need to meditate on, that you need to memorize, that you need to personalize, that you even need to verbalize out loud? Because Satan can't read your mind. He can influence your mind, but he can't read your mind. So when you use the truth of God's word... It is powerful. It's a weapon against the enemy to defeat evil, to defeat the the, the non-truths, the distortions, the deceptions, the lies, the accusations that happen in your mind, in your life. And this encounter between Jesus and Satan, it, it raises a question. Have you filled your mind with the truth of God? Have you filled your mind with it is written statements that help you Be prepared to dispel the lies that come your way. Because you have battles and I have battles. And what we need is the truth of God at the tip of our tongue, in the top of our mind, embedded in our heart. Because we all have to deal with this stuff. We all are facing different battles. I love this book by a guy named Thomas Brooks. It's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Schemes. It's an older book. But he describes like 50 or 60 different methods of the enemy. Puts them in two categories, temptation and accusation. Just to give you a few quick examples, sometimes these are the things that Satan does or says or tries to influence us on. He'll say, you know, he'll say, look at the short-term pleasures, and, and he tries to hide the long-term consequences. 
In other words, he, he shows you the bait but hides the hook. Or he gets you to rationalize sin as virtue, right? Makes you think, no, you're not greedy, you're frugal. Or he shows you the sin of others, so you say to yourself, yeah, well, if he did it, no problem if I do it. Nobody's that pure, something like that. Or he tells you, don't worry, God will forgive you, just do it, it's not a big deal. Or maybe he makes accusations and causes you to look more at your sin and obsess with that than look at your Savior. Or he causes you to over obsess over your past. Tells us your sins have done too much damage. It can't be undone. Maybe he makes you think about your own inner struggles that, that no real Christian has those desires or thinks those thoughts. So you better hide those things. And on and on these strategies go. The enemy is playing you. He's out to get you. And he's a liar. And he's an accuser. And he's a slander. And if you, if you stay back on your heels and you remain passive, you're going to lose the battles. But if you rise up and if you build your life on truth, if you identify your vulnerabilities and susceptibilities and then begin to apply the truth of God to your life and build your life on these things, you, you put on the armor of God. And you live in that truth. And you live in those realities. Take some effort, but you're going to have a huge impact. Truth of the matter is, sometimes we lose the battles, don't we? But God says, get back up. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to equip you. But you got to do your part. Because what I believe needs to happen in the church, in this church and in many churches, is we need to learn to be fighters. We need to learn how to win the battles of our everyday lives. Battles that begin in the mind that get into the heart and play out in our living. God wants us to win. In fact, he's won the war and he wants us to win every battle we face, but, but we gotta lean on him and we gotta look to his wisdom. And what Jesus promises us is this. He said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I don't know about you, but I wanna live free. Free from anything that holds me back. Free from sin and all that comes with it. I want to live free for God. I want to live in freedom. The things that become obstacles in our lives. And God wants that for me and he wants that for you. And to do that, we apply what Paul says here. We put on the full armor of God. Will you pray with me? Father, we pause today. And there are battles to be fought. But the ultimate war is over. And we thank you for that. Thank you for winning the war. God, I also pray for each person today that sits here listening. I pray that you would teach us to fight and to win the battles that we face. That we would learn to identify those things that, that are, are our susceptibilities, our vulnerabilities. That you would teach us how to stand firm in the truth and build our lives on that. That we would be reminded of our identity in you that we've been credited righteousness, that we have been empowered and equipped to live for you. God, prepare us with the readiness of the shoes that come with the gospel of peace, that, that we would be reminded of the hope and the eternal perspective that you offer us, that we would learn to trust deeply in you and walk in faith, that we would link our arms together and be strengthened by others' faith. God, bring those people into our lives. God, may we use the weapon of the sword of the Spirit to dispel the lies and the accusations, to overcome the temptations that we face, and to combat evil with good and with what is true. 
God, I lift this community to you. I lift this people to you. And, and I pray for your strength, for your power, for your courage. May we be fighters. May we be fighters. And God, may we honor you with our lives and may you lead us to freedom as we build our lives on truth. And we pray that in Jesus' name. And everybody said. Thanks for listening. If you would like to help support the ministries of Stevens Creek Church, please go to stevenscreekchurch.com and click the Give button. See you next time.